Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Deirdre Kelly, who is here to discuss her book, Fashioning the Beatles. Deirdre's book looks at the Beatles' fashion journey, from rockers to mods, from peacocks to hippies. All of their unique and changing looks are examined. How did the Beatles become the fashion icons of one of the most memorable and exciting fashion decades of the last century? Deirdre Kelly, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I am very well today. Thank you very much, Joe, for having me. My pleasure. We're here to talk about your excellent book, Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World. Um, Really, really interesting book, beautifully illustrated, lots for us to talk about. So we should start by asking you a little bit about, about you and uh, the story of the book. What led you to want to write about the, the Beatles' fashion So perhaps people can already detect from my non-British accent. I live in Toronto, Canada. In terms of me writing the book, I wanted to write a book on fashion because I was, for many years, a staff writer at Canada's The Globe and Mail newspaper. I was at that time writing on fashion after decades writing on dance. I had written a book on ballet to anchor really what I do for a living in a way that's not ephemeral. And I was obsessing as to what kind of subject could I write about that hadn't been explored before in fashion. And it was my husband who just said to me, point blank, your next book needs to be on the Beatles. And I said, why? He said, because your Beatles obsessed. And I said, yeah, I know, but what could I write about the Beatles that has never been written about before? And because I had fashion on the brain, I, ju- I just quipped, unless mm. it was about their fashion. And before even the N on that word really came out of my mouth, I stopped dead in my tracks and realized, hold on, what did I just say? That led me then to research if anything had been done in an in-depth way mm. to study their look, their fashion, which in retrospect seems so obvious that people should have looked at it, but nobody really has done this work before. So... Et voila, Beatles obsession, trying to say something new about a band, about those reams and reams of books and ink spilled and films made. And I seem to have found an angle that allowed for a fresh perspective of my favourite group. I like you. I'm surprised that there aren't more books on this angle. Uh, So the book itself is split into the chapters to split into different years. And the first chapter that you, first main chapter of the book covers... Uh, 1960, which you title the the leather look, um, which most listeners will know when they think of the Beatles in 1960, the images of them in Hamburg and posing for various different pictures, the leather gear is is obvious. How important do you think kind of fashion and this this leather look in particular was to the the pre-fame Beatles? It's a very good question, and. I would say leather didn't figure in their look or their imagination too much before they went to Hamburg. And there's a whole story there. It was an encounter with a group of young Germans who were dressed head to toe in black leather. And this inspired the Beatles. And it's Astrid Kirscher. I nickname her the accidental stylist. And in that group, of course, was Klaus Vormann and Jürgen Vollmer. But to get to your uh, question about the leather, they didn't dress in leather pre-Hamburg. They actually went to Hamburg dressed in suits that Paul McCartney had designed and asked a neighbor to do up for them in lilac fabric. All the young Beatles, and that's what I tried to show, it wasn't an incidental topic for them. Each Beatle had an innate relationship or love affair with fashion and clothing and where each was intently aware of image and the importance of image, not only as a form of personal expression, but also ultimately, and this especially driven home by McCartney, as a form of band identity. You see that I mentioned this when Paul and John first come together. It's actually in the quarrymen. And before Paul arrives on the scene, they are dressed a little bit miscellaneously. 
um, with maybe a rockabilly influence there in the Drake coats and then John, especially in the checkered shirts. But then when Paul comes in, he instantly asks John to dress like him in the drape jackets with the Western string tie. And it's very interesting when you see that first image because it's only Paul and John who are dressed alike. And it shows right away how it was important that this cleaving together through clothing was right there at the beginning. As I mentioned, when they get to Hamburg, they, they tried to dress, especially Paul was driving this home, that they wanted to dress smart because he had been inspired by a group of uh, musicians he had seen. I think it was at Butlins, and he wanted to bring that in. So they wear the suits, but of course, everyone who knows about the Beatles story at the beginning in Hamburg, I mean, they're literally performing in a cellar that was very disreputable. You have gangsters, prostitutes, thugs. They are forced to make show and they are taking amphetamines and they're staying up all hours and those suits take a beating. So they literally, you know, fall away. And that's actually important to know because then it made them open to trying to find a new look for themselves. And they wanted a new look, something mm. that would also be somewhat uniform for them. And as I mentioned, then one night in the club comes in these three young, interesting, artistic Germans that Lenin nicknames the Exes because they draw their inspiration from the existentialists. And Astrid is dressed in leather. And her bedroom, by the way, was all in black. And the Beatles were so impressed by this. So they kind of followed the lead of these uh, young people uh, that they met on the continent. And so then the leather look becomes their look. It becomes the first iconic look. And how we know so much about it, unlike these other images that I said, if you're lucky, you'll find the lilac suit. If you're lucky, you'll find the quarryman drape jacket and Western mm. string tie look. We have these iconic images taken by Astrid of the Beatles in leather at the very beginning. And similarly, that leather look is solidified in the imagination, popular imagination, because when their manager, Brian Epstein, first met them, that's how the Beatles looked. And his very first promotional photo shoot he organized for the Beatles, the Beatles again are dressed in the leather. So we have a kind of variation of the leather look mm. and it's very much solidified. And then it becomes very important in the early Beatles story because it's dressed in leather with this new hard, super polished sound that they get while beating away on those um, stages in Hamburg mm. that make the Beatles really stand out when they return to England. They do a performance at Litherland, I'm sure your listeners remember that it was billed as direct from Hamburg. And then the audience, because they found them so exotic, the way they were dressed was so, to quote Paul, beyond compare. You know, nobody was dressing like this. The other mm. bands were much more tailored still. You still were dressing a bit like your mom if you're a girl and you're dressing like your dad if you're, if you're a guy. You weren't mm. dressed in this very provocative, quite, I would say, sexy way, very uh, body conscious way. So different. And it's that moment that the Beatles really become a wow. Mm. And literally it's a wow because right after that is they get the cavern gigs dressed in the leathers. And then eventually we know Epstein, as I mentioned, he really liked that leather look. In fact, mm. it was a turn on for him as well. Then he understood it as, you know, it was a Beatles look. But he did want to gradually urge them to get out of the leathers to don new clothes but that's probably another question for you <laughs> well yeah so that's it's interesting that you're right I, I never really considered he he keeps them in those leathers initially the yeah the old story is that they meet brian and brian says i'm afraid you know you're gonna have to gonna have to get into suits but you're, you're right that doesn't happen straight away it is a gradual thing but it does happen they do eventually appear. You see some of those those cavern pictures from start of sixty two. They've got the waistcoats and the ties. The leather is is gone. Do you think that it was inevitable that they would kind of go down this more traditional route on their looks? And why do you think Brian was keen to get them to to change? 
many things you've just brought up. So just one thing to say, uh, yeah, it definitely, that's one of the things I want to bust the myth. Mm. Definitely Brian didn't say, well, I like you guys, but you got to change. Even if Brian tried, I bet he wouldn't have lasted as their manager mm. because the Beatles, they took charge of their image. They self-directed what was going to happen with that image. They were open to suggestion and they were so plugged in, you know, with the scene and they were very ambitious and they were very much aware of going next level. And they were very determined never to be seen as yesterday's men Hmm. and to be seen doing what everybody else was doing. Brian, no way. Did he uh, snap his finger and say they had to change? He did suggest to them, however, that if they wanted to get out of yet another cellar or another subterranean uh, locale, which was the Cavern Club, literally a former vegetable and fruit cellar, that they had to dress in a different way to be able to climb a ladder that might get them onto national television, which was, again, very interesting. Beatles at right time, right place kind of thing, too, because all these factors are happening within the culture that the Beatles are able to harness uh, new technologies, new audiences through mass media. And you had to dress smartly uh, to be able to go to this much more mass uh, audience. And the Beatles were aware of that. And they were aware of needing to get beyond the Cavern Club, get beyond even the borders of Liverpool. And again, I go out of my way trying to find these. I've got Paul and John in their own words talking about, we didn't want to stay in the leathers forever. Mm. We knew we had to go next level. And John was into it. I mean, there's, again, the whole commentary out there, too, about, oh, John really resented the suits. Yeah. He said that definitely later in life, but also in the moment I found John in his own words saying he was into it and he had his eye on on the big bigger game and he would change his appearance if it was going to mean that they would become more successful, more known and rich. So getting back to the point about Brian Epstein and that gradual push, it's kind of, I found it quite cute and charming in a way. Because there are images that only recently have come to light. In fact, I was trying to purchase them for this book. And unfortunately, I was unable to make a, a deal, let's say, with the original owner. It was all amicable, but he didn't want to part with them. Uh, it's exactly to the point. Brian said, I'm going to make this gradual, gradual transformation. And there are the Beatles in their leather trousers, but mm. they're wearing sweaters. Uh, so that just has recently come to light. And then uh, slowly, the trousers themselves give way to store-bought suits. And the Beatles were so into it. They liked, They went shopping. They knew what they wanted, and they enjoyed it. Then Brian says, well, maybe you should go to my own tailor, Beto Dorn. And that's why I, I chose deliberately an image of the Beatles on a ferry boat, because, there's, uh, there's again, they do talk about it that they were super excited Mm. to go across the water to this posh tailor. And they were delighted to choose their own fabrics and make their own suggestions as to cuts and silhouettes. And they knew, remember I mentioned at the beginning, they're very ambitious. So what they're doing is all the way through their career, right to the very, very end. Even today, I would say Paul McCartney is probably still doing it. They study intently the competition. They are very aware of their own landscape, both musically and sartorially. So they're looking at the uh, other bands, say Merseyside, even at that time, everybody is wearing clothing as a kind of gimmick or as a kind of band identity. The Beatles did not make that up or invent that. In fact, I quote, I think it's New Musical Express in the 50s is giving instructions to would-be musicians who want to form a band and sort of one of the top edicts is try to get a look that identifies you as members of a band. Mm. <laughs> Again, Paul McCartney saw that when he was a youth and it really stuck with him how, how smart that was. So what the Beatles were doing, though, they saw that, say, Ringo 
when they met Ringo over in Hamburg, he was working with Rory Storm. Rory is so flamboyant. He's head to toe in gold lame. Mm. And he's got his backup band dressed in screaming shades of turquoise and cherry red. You know, it's very, very flamboyant, you could say, very flash. And then you have a band called The Undertakers. They take their their name quite literally, and they're wearing uh, all black, and they're wearing the uh, stovepipe hats, you know, so it's a costume. Mm. So the Beatles didn't want to be flash. They didn't want to have a costume. They wanted to do something fresh. So they really invested in this, and they came up with something that is very um, modern Mm. at this time when they start getting their suits. They're inspired by the continent. Remember, they've just been on the continent. They've just been hanging with these Germans who are inspired by French. Nouvelle Vague Cinema, the Jean-Paul Belmondos of this world. And it's a very chic look that that they call it the bum freezer jacket, which is a boxy jacket hitting the hip. So this is this mod element. It's a very tapered, lean silhouette. And it all falls into place because the Beatles intentionally are pursuing this new tailored identity. And even when they choose to wear the pointed toe, high heeled black leather boots, which by the way, were flamenco boots. So for male flamenco dancers and Beatles themselves, once they saw them in the window, to be specific, it was John and Paul who saw them first. They come the next day and they want to, I call it beatify it. So whatever they saw in the culture or was, you know, in the street, in fact, they're very inspired by what they see. They want to modify it and make it their own, a distinctly Beatles look. Mm. Their tailor and the brief star of A Hard Day's Night is (laughs) a man called Dougie Millings, uh, who I I didn't know that much about until I read your book. And I, I thus learned a lot more and he's a really interesting and very important part of the whole Beatles story really tell us a little bit about about Dougie Millings how they became involved with him and what do you think made that that partnership of him and them so successful so Dougie Millings already had a reputation for dressing the new class of pop star that was coming up the two eyes for instance which was a seminal club one of the first in london to get an espresso machine so you it was really a coffee bar but it had a stage and you could go for live music the relationship between fashion and pop music you had this energy coming out of the clubs and i don't think it was at all an accident that people like dougie millings were setting up shop they're tailoring shops very close to these new clubs Because they were getting the uh, musicians themselves coming in as clients. So in the case of Dougie Millings, he had a very established uh, list of new pop stars coming up, like Cliff Richards and The Shadows, for instance. They were very big at that time. So I think it was Brian who was very aware of who's dressing whom. And he's the one who made the suggestion. Again, Mm. you can't tell the Beatles what to do, or you can make a suggestion. And the Beatles were, once they came down to London, and again, they probably did their own research. And so they made an appointment. They agreed to go up and see Dougie Millings. And I have a bit of a better understanding of what might have transpired then, because Dougie's son, Gordon, still with us, and he's been extremely helpful uh, with me, first of all, giving me uh, an interview. Gordon did tell me that the Beatles were, again, very uh, much involved, coming up with their own ideas for clothing and looks. And Paul McCartney led the way for another iconic Beatles garment or look that evolves shortly after they meet Millings in 1962, around the time of Love Me Do, and that is the collarless jacket Mm. that became so identified with the Beatles in late 62 and into 63, never after 63, by the way, by the time the Beatles become really huge internationally and they go to America. Some people aren't aware of this. They never 
wore those collarless suits again. Why? Because once the Beatles made a garment or a fabric or a look or a cut famous or popular, let's say, it went mass and everybody's dressing like they are, they didn't want to be part of it. So mm. they would instantly drop a look and move on to the next thing, which is also what they did with their music. That's mm. why the albums, they don't repeat themselves with the same, you could say, is true of their clothing choices and their look. They didn't want to ever be like everybody else. So they're always trying to push it forward. With Dougie Millings, they had a wonderful collaborator. The Beatles, in fact, called him Dad. Millings was very, I would say, simpatico uh, towards all these musicians that he was now dressing. He had a piano in his tailoring shop. I had read that McCartney would sit down and just tootle about on the keys while they're waiting for fittings and, and reviewing cloths. So you could see that there was something about him that he must have been a good listener. He enjoyed uh, his clients and he must have really enjoyed the Beatles and he was willing to work with them, keep pace with them. Obviously, he wasn't just taking orders. He must have made suggestions. And similarly, how I think the relationship worked with George Martin, you know, there was a master at his craft. In this case, the master is the tailor. And he would have ideas and the Beatles would listen, but the Beatles had ideas of their own. And I think that there was a, probably a very um, interesting discussion and collaboration. And that has to be true because look at the looks that come out of this collaboration. It's not just those colorless suits, but as we go forward, uh, we've got the uh, also very distinctive Beatles garment is the velvet collar suit. Again, taking inspiration from the continent. And to me, it's Teddy Boy style too, mm. because the Teds all had velvet collars and the drain pipe uh, trousers, so-called because they were so uh, cut so narrow to the leg, they looked like drain pipes or they also were known as drainies. And so again, you have this tailored aesthetic, bespoke suits, but look at this silhouette, it's very different, taking from various influences which is, I also wanted to say about the Beatles, that they were very cosmopolitan in their clothing choices. And they're bringing this to, I guess you would say, British tailoring traditions. And they're coming up with unique styles that then absolutely rock the world. And bands start imitating them. Kids start imitating it. You can even have DIY patterns to make your own uh, Beatles suits at home. The chapter of your book that covers 1966 is titled From Mod to Odd, which I really liked. How much did mod fashions influence the Beatles as, as they moved through 65 into 66? That's where the, you know, the, the rise of the, of the mod movement, certainly in the, in the UK, happens. How does that look change into, into 66 as opposed to that, their first flush of fame? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Beatles played with various elements of style within the culture. So they enjoyed mod dress and you definitely can see the mod influence in all that we've just been discussing, that lean silhouette, clean, modular, almost futuristic look in fashion. They, however, were not mods. I always want to emphasize that the Beatles belonged to no fashion tribe but their own. Mm. So again, they wouldn't have been slavishly following trends. They were aware of trends and they would try them on and they would, pardon the pun, modify mod to suit their own purposes. I would say that collarless suit, for instance, becomes a mod staple. I was quite interested in seeing that because I would say that's a Beatles look that maybe does date itself. It's maybe one of the only looks of the Beatles that I think really is of its time. Because mm. you don't see youth today or bands today wearing the colorless jacket. But nonetheless, for a spell there, and I think that's, again, why the Beatles dropped it, the mods really uh, took that on and they really wore that and made the colorless suit 
a uh, mod style point. But the Beatles wanted to move on and they were also moving on with the culture. Fashion, as we know, is very much a pendulum swing. It goes from one extreme to another. So in 1966, which is really interesting, mod is already become old fashioned. It's become last year's fashion. Mm. The new fashion is nostalgic. It's romantic. It's inspired by, and I always found this really interesting too, again, that the Beatles are very British. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, an obvious thing to say, but they're inspired by their own culture, their own poetry, their literary traditions, their sartorial traditions, the music hall traditions. You, mm. you hear that also in their music. Mm. So, and then what's happening in 66 is you've got people and especially people, I should say, not just people, not ordinary people. They, it was actually a movement led by aristocrats. And um, Vogue did a story on some of the uh, jet-setting scions of the aristocracy. And they were able to go to, of course, places like Marrakesh and Afghanistan. They were starting to bring back trinkets and I guess you call it um, native dress, elements of native dress. And they start to play with it in their own time in, the, let's say, the center of London. or And Vogue has this uh, fun, I guess, quotes of Jane Ormsby Gore, otherwise known as Lady Jane in the Stone Song. And she's talking about how she and her pals are ransacking the family heirlooms, the trunks in the country estates, and they're finding all these old clothes and they're wanting to wear them in new and inventive ways. So it meant this nostalgic uh, element is in the culture and it starts to have huge influence on what's happening in the boutiques, not coincidental lady jane or jane ormsby gore is married to a one michael rainey who around this time is opening a very important boutique and a very important boutique for the beatles fashion story called hung on you and the clothing there was vintage and ethnic for lack of a better word and it was quite novel it was uh, a seraglio of textures and cultural influences and colors and Beatles get turned on by this new boutique scene and they want to dress in a different way. So sadly, Dougie Millings no longer is their tailor of choice. It's almost all of a sudden you're out. Uh, again, I don't want to think that there was any kind of nastiness there, but when the Beatles wanted to move on, we all know that they could be very cutthroat and just doing what they had to do. Mm. Two words, Pete Best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so these new boutiques and this new aesthetic, nostalgicness aesthetic is important in the Beatles story because in 66, they ask Rainey to create a new wardrobe for their tour. And it's their last world tour. We all know they end touring in 66 and they're dressed in Rainey's new clothes. And, Rainey was known to have suits that were very brightly colored. They were nicknamed smarty suits. And the shirts on the men now have frills. It's, there's also a feminine vibe coming into the menswear. And it's, it later becomes known as the Peacock Revolution. And the Beatles are the forerunners of this new movement in menswear, primarily because they're wearing the clothes and they're on a world stage. And what a beetle wears today, everyone wears tomorrow, and it becomes the fashion. So from 66, we go into into 67, and I, I think that's the most dramatic change in their, oh, yeah. in their look, really. I mean, if you look at the you know, any picture that you, that you can see of the Beatles in 1967, if you think of that launch that they do for Sgt. Pepper at Brian's place, how they look there what they're wearing and to how they look on Ed Sullivan. It's it's almost frighteningly different. Yeah, um, it's shocking. You say if you have a book, you turn the page and you, you're blown away. Even I was blown away. And I was sitting with their images for years and studying them. I, 
astonishing. So when I was uh, uh, eight in 1992 was was when I I discovered the beat was because I saw the the help film on Sunday afternoon mm. TV, and that evening was the South Bank show documentary on Sergeant Pepper, which later appears on the box set, and that was past my bedtime. So I got my mum to record on a, a VHS that that program, and I remember I got back from school the next day, and I, I couldn't. I couldn't comprehend that the people in that documentary and the people in Help were the same four people. It it, it, <laughs> it completely blew my mind. So 67 is interesting in that sense. Tell us a little bit about what influences were coming together to help them decide how they look then. It carries over from what I just mentioned, that nostalgic movement in fashion that's starting to erupt in 66 and then becomes mainstream. And part of that nostalgic, sensibility especially among the british people was to look back at days of empire mm. maybe um not necessarily sure if it was a, an admiring look or was it ironic i think it was maybe mostly ironic because one of the things i uh, i do emphasize about the beatles and their ability to dress as creatives as opposed to what their father's generation were doing is the dissolution of national service. That's a very important um, opening up, as they say, of this whole, even that they could be in a, in a band and mm. maybe you could say, and have a prolonged adolescence, as I said, and dress the way they wanted to dress because they didn't have to man up. They didn't have to grow up if they mm. didn't want to. And that's true of very many young men of their generation. So as I mentioned, I'm thinking there might've been just this ironic look back at the days of empire, which was very militaristic. And Robert Orbach, whom I do interview in the book, he is the founder of a very important boutique uh, called I Was Lord Kitchener's Valet. And again, that's uh, he's also being very ironic because that those words were taken from a recruitment poster of the day. In fact, you can see this in a magical mystery tour when Paul in, in the scene where he's playing the military officer, look at look at the poster behind him. It's the original Lord Kitchener saying, We want mm. you. Mm. So uh Robert Orbach told me that at this time, again with the nostalgic sensibility in the air, that uh people were ransacking these uh warehouses. He said they were just packed with military clothing that people weren't using anymore, just was all redundant. And it became a fashion, mm. this military garb. It even went across the pond to America. What else was influencing them at this time is, and now it is coming from across the pond from America, is hippie. The hippie movement uh, was very much uh, tied yet again to another militaristic uh, concept which was not just the concept of a reality here in uh, America, where you still had now compulsory military service, i.e. for the Vietnam War. Mm. This is very much all erupting in the background to the Beatles story and the Beatles themselves for a while there. This is one thing where Brian told them to temper what they say in public, but then eventually they just start voicing their opinion of how wrong they thought all of this was, along with, by the way, segregation in the mm. U.S. They had their own opinions about what was happening. So in the USA, hippie is part of the protest movement, which is tied to Vietnam War. When hippie comes to the UK or to Britain, it doesn't have the same political heft. It's mm. an aesthetic it's a way of dressing and looking groovy and plugged into the time. So you have the love beads, you have the, again, it is tying in with what the Brits are already were doing, bringing clothing from faraway lands into the UK. There's Thea Porter, for instance, she was very well-known boutique in London at this time, and she's selling things from Pakistan. The Beatles are shopping there, they're for interior design as well. So the hippie influence is there with them. They are shopping at the stalls. They are shopping for secondhand clothes, the Chelsea Antiques Market as well. But they also, when they want to make hippie part of their look, they do consign a group called The Fool, 
Mm. And it was a design collective. A couple of them were from Holland. One was a Canadian. Uh, maybe three of them were, were from Holland. And one, as I say, Barry Finch, who was an associate of Brian Epstein, by the way. So it all ties in. That's how they all meet each other and know each other. And the Beatles commissioned them to create the most extravagant hippie-esque clothes for the time. So you have the cover of Sgt. Pepper. That was something that they had designed for them at Berman's, which is a theatrical costumer. And they each again got so excited about choosing their own colors and their own details that they added to their own outfits to personalize them. But then they asked the fool to create everyday dress for them, but also you could say maybe costuming for them or stage clothing uh, for them. For instance, when they do the All You Need Is Love uh, broadcast, they're wearing elements of the fool. They are wearing elements of the fool when they film uh, I Am The Walrus for the Magical Mystery Tour sequence. That's almost entirely the fool. And then John commissions clothing for him to be made to uh, premieres of his film. And uh, there's a very strong association. It becomes very entrenched in the Beatles story because at the end of 67, the Beatles decide to open and they were among the very first pop groups to uh, invest in fashion in this direct way. They open their own fashion boutique Mm. and they call it the Apple Boutique. And they hire the fool to create the hippies clothes that are sold at this boutique. And that becomes a whole other story there. When you think about it, that's sort of remarkable. We live in a world now where major film stars, pop stars, they do lines of things. They, there's fashion lines, there's perfume lines, there's, there's everything, there's, there's merchandise. That didn't happen anywhere near as much in the 60s because it, it was all so new and so fresh and you're right yeah they decide to open this um this boutique apple tailoring is also uh something that they look into and that they a road that they do go down why do you think they decided to to launch these these enterprises and, and would you say they were successful again excellent question they were so fantastically wealthy and uh they were in I think it was 95% tax bracket. It was something insane. Mm. <laughs> and their accountants advised the Beatles that you better open a business or do something with the money so that it's not all going to the tax man, as George sang about. So that is part of the origin, you know, as to why they decided to open their own enterprise. And by the way, it was multi-pronged. It wasn't just fashion Fashion happened to be, and I found that fascinating, the first manifestation of what was known as, and is still today known as Apple, Mm. because it was recording, it was art, it was tech, you know, everything in there was supposed to be innovative, and there was supposed to be some kind of research and excellence, and and, and again, the Beatles doing it their own way in a very uh, brave new world uh, sense Mm. of spirit. But the fashion boutique, I think it was well-intentioned, but here's what I think happened, is that for the first time in their career, the Beatles ended up being behind the fashion, behind the trend, as opposed to leading it. And they weren't, they were the first to admit this, they weren't retailers, they didn't really know this world of fashion retail. So they hired the fool, that's a whole other story because there was I think it ended up being a very sour relationship eventually Mm. with them. But also what the fool had been doing in 67 hippie s clothes was no longer the fashion in 68. Again, fashion's pendulum swung again. You were going now more into an anti-fashion aesthetic, which we can all see once you see the uh, images of the Beatles on the White Album, for instance, and going forward, look at pictures there. So the Beatles themselves, they start to drop the hippie-ass clothes, but these clothes were in production mm. and they were now coming into the shop. They kind of missed it. Had it just been a pop-up like we, we have today, perhaps there might've been more success with it. As it was, the Beatles were 
misled by the people they wanted to go into business with, there's very strong allegations that the fool started being quite wasteful with the Beatles' own money. The Beatles themselves were told about this by their own associates, about the extravagance on the side of the fool. And I do quote Lenin saying, F off, we're not uh, shopkeepers, we're artists. So they wanted to just persist in the idea of clothing as an artistic or creative expression. So they didn't want to get bogged down by being robbed blind. Mm. The other aspect of the boutique is that it was so popular with fans who couldn't afford these very expensive fantastical new creations, they were shoplifting like crazy. So you weren't even making any profits. And the Beatles eventually do something quite radical because it ends up being, perhaps there was some success in it because today people do talk about that enterprise and those clothing from The Fool have become museum collector's items. And it was a very creative moment in the culture and in the Beatles story. But the Beatles really disliked it, according to reports, when they were identified as shopkeepers mm. and that they were in a way selling out. This just rubbed them the wrong way. So we know that John and Paul especially took umbrage with this and they decided to shut down the boutique. According to Lenin, it was Yoko's idea to give away the clothing, make it a happening. And if that is her idea, that's indeed what they all decided to do. It was quite, again, extravagant on their part because they just opened the doors and it became a free-for-all and the public mm. just um, stripped the walls bare. <laughs> but what I discovered too, at the same time you just mentioned that, it's not that they didn't like the idea of being involved in fashion because precisely while this is happening, they invest in a new enterprise, fashion enterprise, retail enterprise, which was on the King's Road, close by uh, Hung On You and Granny Takes a Trip, and it was known as Dandy Fashions. Has its own really interesting story, uh, started by Tara Brown, the man who blew his mind out in a car, the Guinness Air, and uh, his shares were bought out by an Australian immigrant to London at the time who actually worked briefly for Michael Rainey at Hung On You, and his name is John Criddle. Lennon liked Criddle. Criddle was a bit of a, an upstart troublemaker, liked the drugs, liked the booze, liked the sex. Like Apparently, there are all sorts of goings-on happened at that boutique. Mm. So John got in tight with him, liked his company. Then they decide, or he decides, they're all going to throw their support Criddle's way. Dandy Fashions becomes rebranded as Apple Tailoring. And we have some really quite remarkable clothing coming out of there made by Andrea Bussell, who was the former Mrs. John Criddle, today known as the mother of your very famous British ballerina, Darcy Bussell. And they were very nipped uh, waist suits, very broad shoulders, uh, very elegant menswear, uh, sort of diametrically opposed to what the fool were doing. And then again, the Beatles eventually tired of this. As I mentioned, their, their whole story is that they keep wanting to move on, which is why you get this chameleon-like aspect to them because they're constantly changing. And mm -hmm. they decide to drop the whole fashion investment altogether. They have uh, a hairdresser, Leslie Cavendish, installed in the basement. They let Criddle continue with the lease, but they themselves wipe their hands of it, move on. So you asked... Was it successful? You know, I guess commercially, no. Mm. They lost money. Mm. But it was successful from the point of view that you were absolutely right, which you just said at the beginning. Prior to this, rock stars didn't have these ancillary brands. They weren't seen as necessarily arbiters of taste writ large. Mm. The Beatles started that with these fashion voyages and enterprises so there is something that was very important about what they did regardless of them really taking a bath financially on both of them 
Absolutely. We'll end with a bit of a discussion, just like you do in the book of the Beatles after 1970. And I think it might be interesting to conclude with looking at, say, through the 70s, through that that 10 years that all four of them are, are, are around. They're not together, obviously. Does fashion stay important to them through through the 70s? Who of the four of them do you think focuses as, as much on, on how he looks as he did maybe when he was a Beatle? That's such an excellent question. And I think my immediate thought goes to Paul McCartney. I mentioned earlier that the Beatles, after their involvement in Apple tailoring and also the Apple boutique, you know, go in the direction of what might be called anti-fashion. And Mm -hmm. by that, what I mean is what seems to predominate now is individual and personalized style. I actually really like how the Beatles look at the end of 68 and into 69. You know, it's so eclectic, so individualized, you know, that they are still wearing elements of bespoke, Mm -hmm. but they're wearing it with denim. They're wearing the feminine scarves, but, but they're wearing it with, gentlemen's hats. And I just love the eclecticism of this period. By the way, two of the Beatles especially are influenced by the new women in their lives in terms of having this new direction and how they dress. And that's John after he meets Yoko. It's almost a cleansing of his dandy-esque persona, you Mm. know, head to toe in white as Yoko is or head to toe in black as Yoko is. Although that black look kind of heralds back to early Beatles. So it probably wasn't a hard sell for him. But similarly, when Paul McCartney meets Linda Eastman, you know, she wasn't a fashion plate whatsoever. She dressed practically. She was, you know, a single mom. She came from wealth uh, or, or, or some means, so she could have afforded it, but that just wasn't her scene. She was into the music. She was a photographer. She just didn't wear the trappings of fashion whatsoever. And I think Paul found that attractive Mm. and refreshing. And you can see also in his aesthetic after he meets her, he kind of, again, he loses some of that dandy peacock posturing and starts to dress in maybe things that you might call anti-fashion or non-fashion, but it's still a distinctive style. It's very interesting. So, I said my mind goes to Paul right away in the 70s, because if you look at how he dresses for the stage and wings, to me, it's seriously, it's a wow. I can't believe it. I think that there's that feeling that the 70s is, you know, it's been said the decade that fashion forgot. That's um, a huge disservice. I mean, I, I will challenge you all now to go look at some images of Paul McCartney in the 70s when he's on stage with wings and his um, looks are really eye popping and he's very much investing in a whole new freed up image for himself. I happen to know that he was also actively looking at the scene, the boutique, the new boutique scene in London. And he was asking certain up and coming designers never on a level of high fashion, but like more the street and, and funky fashion. He was, uh, he was uh, trying to commission them for his, some of his stage clothes. So that, that's very interesting for me. Lennon, definitely he's really honing his look. You know, we have the granny glasses are now just signature John at this period. He's now getting the glasses custom made uh, in America when he moves to New York permanently and what I found interesting when I read uh, May Pang's book, Loving mm. John, if you read the first three chapters, again, I was reading it with this uh, focus for fashion. It was it, anything I could find on fashion. I was just desperate to find, by the way, because I've mentioned hasn't been thoroughly examined before. So you're just grateful if you can find a bit here, a bit there. But May's book opens with John obsessed with shopping and having to buy multiple pairs of jeans and very slim cut jeans. And, and he's swapping clothes with May and wearing her clothes. She's wearing his clothes. And when they break up, one of the first things he wants back are his jeans, you Mm. know? So he's very much gone into this whole, I guess you could say more of an anti-fashion high style, personalized style denim with everything and his glasses and then, of course, you have that very famous Bruin uh, shot of him in the New York T-shirt, which becomes very iconic, John. George, 
All Things Must Pass comes out in 1970. I personally love his hair. Mm. <laughs> it's super long, uh, you know, almost down to his rib cage. I think it's luxurious. He is also really playing with uh, different elements. I love this picture of him in his Himalayan boots, uh, uh, you know, his big hat, his beard, his hair. I think it's a photo shoot from the day when Peter Sellers, I think, was hanging with him. I love it. I know a girlfriend who, when I showed it to her once, she said, oh, he looks so scruffy. So I suppose it's to each his own. Mm. So I know George, too, uh, was still very much uh, involved in his appearance. He He's also on tour in 74. He's wearing clothing that reflect his uh, spiritual beliefs. Again, it, it's a kind of form of personal branding. Ringo, last but not least, always the most natalie dressed of the Beatles. Someone asked me recently, and I know I, I saw his face, he was floored, and they asked me, who's your favorite Beatles style-wise? Mm. And I said, well, it's got to be Ringo. What? You know, how could it be Ringo? I said, well, look at the guy. First of all, anyone who names himself after his love of uh, jewelry, <laughs> you know that this guy's really vested in style. And Ringo never lost it. I mean, you talked about the 70s, let's say right there, 1971. He's mm. modeling for Vogue magazine. He's wearing Holland and Cherry cloth as cut by Tommy Nutter. It's in terrific ensembles, kind of clashing patterns. Ringo looks fantastic. Mm. And through the 70s, through the 80s, he never loses his love of a good suit. He also never loses that Beatles curiosity and willingness to experiment with style, mixing your British sartorial tradition with cowboy hats and boots, really mixing it up. And look at Ringo today, well into his 80s, still on stage, and he has perfect his style he just looks super it all mattered to them fashion mattered to the Beatles their look was as important to them as their sound mm. what a perfect way to end so just to remind people the book is fashion the Beatles the looks that shook the world Deidre Kelly thanks so much for your time thank you what a pleasure to speak with you today <laughs>